Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa why they care, what we can do, and most importantly, what you can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Rantan Productions and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. I am your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I am your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today we talk to Gary Palusa Verdant, the executive director for the Center for Religion and Public Life at the Phillips Theological Seminary. We talked to Gary about the intersection of Christianity and white supremacy and how we unconsciously benefit from it. And Jesse keeps calling the Old Testament the Torah for some reason. No reason at all. Enjoy, everybody. Gary, welcome back to Pod for Good. This is so nice to be invited back. Thanks so much, Jesse and Chris. I, I wish you could be back in our studio with the banjo, but it's, it is still pandemic, so we are still doing this remotely. And we brought you on because life and the world has brought up the topics that we talked about the first time again. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the Capitol insurrection that happened earlier this year. It is February 1st when we're recording this, so it's been still a little under a month. I get more disturbed nearly every day as more and more various kinds of media emerge about what actually happened there. Just today, I read an article by Sarah Posner in the Rolling Stone magazine that was the best detailing I've seen of the white Christian nationalist supporters who were there at the, at the Capitol and part of the storming. And the way she's written on it, several others have written about the way that prayer and Christian religious symbolism were mixed together with violent actions, which always, as a Christian, always makes me horrified. I did feel, like a lot of the country, I'm sure, that uh, the temple of the world's strongest democracy, or at least we used to be able to claim that, had been desecrated and that there were a lot of people motivated by, quote, their faith, unquote, to be a part of that. And that faith is some version of white supremacist Christianity. So, I mean, and I feel like this is important to say, like, let's try to define these terms, because you look at American history, and usually when it is white people doing something bad, those white people are usually Christian. One, because it's the majority of, mm-hmm. Amer- of white Americans are Christian. But mm-hmm. how do we, when we're talking about white Christian supremacy, how do we, for people who may attack us for hating Christians, how do we define these terms? So I identify as a Christian and I am also white. Now, I am, I am white, but just as an aside, if things had gone differently in the early part of the 20th century, I wouldn't be considered white um, because I'm half Italian and and in the racial categories of the day, Anglo, Anglo-Saxons were at the top of the races and the Irish, uh, Italians, Jews from most places in the world were in some lower category and then more brown people below that and the darkest of dark black people at the very lowest rung of all races. There was a huge number of steps in that racial hierarchy that got set up. But when we're talking about white supremacist Christianity, I'm going to break that down a little bit, the white supremacist part and the Christianity part. As I understand white supremacy, it is not so much a 
rooted in individual feelings, whether or not I like Black people, whether or not I have Black friends, whether or not I feel personal affection for some my coworkers, let's say. No, white supremacy is rooted in a set of ideologies, beliefs, narratives, how we, how we understand how we belong to each other, moral order, and all of that arranged in such a way and put in policy and acted out in the way citizens interact with each other in a way that says white people are superior to everybody else, that the country was made in some way for white people. And I'm currently reading Ibram Kendi's uh, massive volume of Stamp from the Beginning, which is this definitive history of racist ideas in the world. And it is spectacular piece of scholarship and also so incredibly disturbing since from the beginning, 1619 and on, actually going back to the Spanish uh, colonial era before 1619 and Jamestown settlement and like Spanish colonial era of, of why is it that they felt superior to the, the tribes, the nations which were here? And why is it that even the priest who, who was an advocate for the indigenous groups, why could he say but importing black slaves wouldn't be a bad idea to run the encomiendas and all? So from the beginning, there was a hierarchy of color and Christianity has been, well, arguably it's been the major carrier of white supremacy. All three of us are, have at some point, our, our peoples in American history have been considered not white and have been discriminated against, whether it's Catholics, Jews, Italians, Irish, and I, I imagine right. someone has written about this, and I know someone's written about it, about Jews at least, about like when Jews become white and what happens and why that happens. But you would think after so many of these groups get accepted into white America, for example, that would cause a, a questioning of why are we human beings classify by nature? Like stereotyping is something our brain naturally does, right? It's something we have to fight against. Why hasn't there been more conversations about the fact that this is how... This is how America, especially, decided to unnaturally segregate itself to set winners and losers. And this is a major way that we've done it. I mean, this wasn't necessarily the way in the ancient world. In the biblical world, color was nowhere nearly as important as, as the combination of religion and nationality. And nations being, or tribes and all, being much smaller than they are in the nation-state world today. So I think I have a couple of a couple of responses to that. One is we haven't had a deeper conversation on it because groups like Italians, Catholics of various varieties and Irish, we all fought to be white because we because we got that, hey, being white in this country is what gives you an in, which is another, of course, version of buying into and then being privileged by white supremacy. Yeah, my grandparents, when they came here from Italy, they were definitely discriminated against by their neighbors who called them the N-word and and told them they wanted to move out from uh, suburban Chicago because they didn't want any of that kind living here. I, as uh, with the Peluso last name, I don't have that anymore because I've become white. I've just been folded into that, to that whiteness of it. The other is, the other answer I would give is, is besides we've benefited from, uh, a lot of us have benefited from whiteness, there's an incredible, incredible 
history of denial. Within Christian circles, within more progressive liberal Christian circles, as well as within Black Christianity of all uh, stripes, Catholic, evangelicals, and the like, it's it's accepted these days that without Black Christianity, white Christianity is possibly irredeemable. We we somehow white Christianity in this country has controlled the has in most influence control is too strong. We have most influenced the narrative of this country, of the entire nation, and it's a narrative that has consistently become blind to the the violence we've done against others. Whether that's the Pilgrim story, which it wasn't much of a story in the U.S. until the Civil War era and on, and that we all came here for religious freedom. Well, that's not right. Some of us came for religious freedom, and some of us came because we were looking for free land and cheap labor. And cheap labor was either indentured servants, or it was, if you could afford to buy a person, you did that. And the land, of course, wasn't free. It was stolen, or it was bargained away, or it was traded, or and the like. But we covered that over in our history. We covered over centuries of our racism. We fight a big civil war and kill 600,000 to 750,000, depending on who you, who you read, fellow citizens. And within less than a decade after that war, we're, we're finding ways as white Southerners, we're finding ways to overcome the abolition of slavery. And we get a new kind of slavery in Jim Crow and all with the conspiracy of white Northerners. And this is part of the story that as a person who grew up in Chicago, I certainly did not own. Uh, I didn't know. The Civil War was all about the, the secession of Southerners, and they're the racist ones and the like. When Dr. King came to, marched in through Cicero, which is where my parents grew up, in fact, and Dr. King, as he's being pelted with stones and bottles and all kinds of things, said, in all my time in the South, I haven't seen hate like this. That we Northerners conspired uh, a lot in regard to the slave, time of slavery, that we conspired with Southerners to reunite the country after the, the Civil War. And every time we did it, we did it at the expense, we reconciled with our Southern neighbors or our Northern neighbors at the expense of justice for African-American persons. And Christianity is just in, in the way we've organized our churches and in, in, in the ways we've promoted uh, a white Jesus and whiteness as, and kind of white behaviors and the like, as the epitome of what it means to be an American, uh, we are just woven throughout this. I think when most people think of, if they do, some, some version of white supremacy Christianity, they think evangelicals, which I, I know, I mean, there, there have been a lot of think pieces about the unity between evangelicals and different movements within the Republican Party, especially with right. Trump's presidency. Right. But I know in your article, you you talk a little bit about that, while that is a large piece of it, that's not, I mean, that there are plenty of mainline Protestant and Catholics that also fall into this category. Robert Jones of the Public Religion Research Institute is Southern Baptist. I think he may be cooperative Baptist now, but Southern Baptist is his tribe. And he's written this fabulous book called White Too Long, 
where and and Public Religion Research Institute puts data with their opinions, and it's a good read. Robert does a combination of of telling his personal story of being Southern Baptist and how he was raised and and how he changed his mind about a number of things regarding race and all, and then combining that with data. And one of the surprising pieces of data for me, Chris, was when he said that in terms of, of kind of scales that have been researchers have put together for judging racial attitudes, that while evangelical white Christians are highest on that scale overall for racism, right around 50%, you've got mainline Christian and also Catholic Christian. And that was surprising to me uh, that it was that high. Now, all this, and this won't be a surprise to I think most of your listeners, all this is highly correlated with support for the former president, for President Trump. And it was white evangelicals who were his strongest, staunchest supporters and their support for him was virtually unchanged after January 6th. And the um, weird to me, this is because it's not my my world anymore. I grew up in a semi-evangelical church, Methodist church. But for evangelicalism today, they are really worried, at least the leaders are, about the number of people of their communions, which have been taken in by QAnon. And, and so you have this correlation even between QAnon conspiracy, evangelical Christianity, white supremacy. It's complicated. It's hard to keep track of it all. Is there a correlation between maybe the aspects of the Bible that that different groups focus on and sort of those ties to white supremacy? Is it that they focusing on certain aspects and using that as justification or the reverse that, because I always wonder, I know that certain Christian groups focus a lot on revelations, for instance. Right. Right. And use that almost as a justification, whether it's truly violent acts like we saw, or that calling everyone from former President Obama the Antichrist to anyone who they disagree with the Antichrist. So I just wonder if if there's a correlation between that and some of what you've seen. Yes, there are correlations. I think you find you'd find very few persons at the top of the racist scale who also believe that Christianity is fundamentally about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. I think that those of us who say, well, Jesus echoing the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, judge the quality of a society, the rightness of society by how they treat their most vulnerable members. I think you'd find low correlation between those people and those who are in the highest racist categories. What's what's amazing to me is the high correlation between texts in the Bible about individual salvation, or at least that's the way they're read, as individual salvation, American individualism, disdain for the federal government, and racist attitudes. That that to me is a really interesting combination of things. One of the one of the criticisms that anybody who who doesn't anybody who's a Christian and says, "Well, I don't believe in white supremacy. It's all a matter of individual choice and decisions." I I usually want to dig into that a little and find out. Well, just how much of an individualist are you? <laughs> because that individualism can be so strong 
that those folks will say there is no such thing as systemic injustice. There is no such thing as systemic evil. That is, of course, unless it's a Democratic president in the White House, and then you may have some systemic evil. But And, and conspiracies, of course, don't work without systems of evil it's, and somebody making a coordination and all. But the, reading the text for individual salvation is, I think, versus a God who cares most and first about those who are most vulnerable in society. I think that's a, that, Chris, would be one set of, of, of different readings. The other thing in terms of readings, I would say, and the, but this is a, a, a longer part of a somewhat different conversation, which is, it, it kind of amazes me that, and something I want to dig into a little more, which is, why is it that for evangelical Christianity in particular, uh, sin is so connected with sex and sexuality, sexual issues, whereas for progressive Christianity, for those of us who still talk about sin, which I do, I wouldn't want to absolutely say, well, it's not about sexuality and about individual choice, but that the way we treat others, uh, the way our economic system is set up, the way we we try to be anti-racist or buy into and benefit from racist society, these are all parts of our lives that also have something to do with sin. But but that differentiation, there's sex and sexuality and morality is all about that versus no morality can be war and economics and and legislation. Well, and, and one of the big ways that that comes out is kind of, I'm sure you'd see strongly correlated with people who would fall into this category, has to do with, with homophobia using picking and choosing pieces of the Old Testament that say, see, homosexuality is wrong. But at the same time, I have a feeling they're probably not keeping kosher or cutting a goat in half when they get married. You know, certain other aspects of the Old Testament, picking and choosing that to justify what are probably not truly held beliefs from their Christianity, but maybe using it to justify other beliefs that they have. We're having this conversation in Red, Oklahoma, where I know there are many people in the state who believe to be a good Christian is to also vote Republican. So my question is, and my, and my question always is, what do we do? We are, now, we are living in a country now where there are at least two distinct universes that we are living in. One who looks at the Capitol insurrection and sees leaders of our country calling people to do that, and the other group who is not seeing that. And we are going to different churches. We are watching different news. We are getting different news. We are on our Facebook feeds are quite different. So what what can we do? Yes. What can we do? Well, let's let me open some answers to that. And I'd, I'd actually love love to hear where you two are at in that, since that is definitely a conversation. There's no settled plan that I know of on that. One, we can I think those of us who are religious, we and on the more progressive side of things. I think we need to find more as as many ways as we can to make our voices louder, which doesn't mean sterner, which doesn't mean shouting. It means clearer. It means a stronger part of the conversation. For the last 40 years, the Christian right has dominated what religion means in public life in this country. And it's almost it's it's now becoming an almost an absurd point with Christian nationalism. And that's turned a whole lot of people off to religion, period. That religion equals what they're seeing when Jesus saves flag is is at the Capitol next to somebody poking out a, the eye of a police officer with the butt of another flag and all. So I think 
finding ways to get our voices out there. And this kind of podcast is, is certainly one of those ways. The center that we've tried to start at the at Phillips Theological Seminary, the Center for Religion and Public Life, is is part of that. Is I get real, I get occasionally really uh, positive and occasionally really negative responses to the blogs I write, which come from a Christian progressive perspective that is highly affirming of a multicultural, multi-religious multiracial democracy. And that is, I think, the other way to talk about the divide, Jesse, or one of the other ways is is there are those of us who who see and want to be part of the nation which is becoming which is coming to be uh, of a no racial majority democracy and a nation of no racial or ethnic or 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 religious majority is a new thing in the world. And so can we pull that off? I hope so. I think that's the continuing part of the American experiment. And I want us us religious folks, us folks with conscience and with moral conviction, which doesn't necessarily all religious folks are that, but that combined together, I want us to be part of the shaping of this country. So making sure that we can form coalitions with as many persons of faith and not of faith as possible who also want to affirm that kind of country to live in. And that's where I even have some some hope for the state of Oklahoma because I there are progressive organizations around. There are organizations that and people who no, they don't necessarily buy into a so-called leftist agenda. Well, I don't either. But I do buy into an agenda that says tolerance, acceptance, compassion, social justice taking a look at uh, more seriously at at what does it really mean to be neighbor to each other. These are, for me, common sense, reasonable questions. So finding ways to get that out. And part of what I want to do is I want to encourage local church and, and other religious community leaders, not to start because many of them are already engaged in the work, but to actually encourage them, keep doing this. I think some advise religious folks and not necessarily in the progressive and, and conservative categories is, are you more of an individualist or are you more of a communitarian? Do you think that that the we is really, we is really fundamental to life as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs did in his last book on morality? Is the we fundamental or is the I fundamental? Well, that's a reasonable discussion and debate to have. I'm on the we side. And if we really took the we seriously and made some headway with that argument, I think we might be able to convince some others to come along. Gary, you and I met doing interfaith work in town, and that is the universe in which I was raised here, where I Mm -hmm. was always meeting with different Christian groups, Muslim groups, whoever was around. Because at least from a Jewish perspective, one, Judaism, because of its history of oppression, never had a built-in, well, we're not like, we're not going to talk to other people. We were just happy to talk to other people. And I always thought we were stronger together. And for me, almost all of the Western monotheistic religions come from the same root idea, which is don't be an asshole to other people. And if we could just, yeah, (laughs) like, let's just start, let's start there. And then we can talk about our differences later. But in Judaism, (laughs) don't do unto others as you wouldn't want done to you. Christianity made it more positive, which is why it's more popular. Uh, do unto others. I feel like there's a lot of personality in the way oh, thank you, Hillel. Jews yeah. and Christians uh, phrase that in there. But I, I always believe having those conversations, interacting with those you disagree with on a spiritual level is a good thing and not something to be avoided. It's just 
it's even one, it's harder now because the pandemic, but two, because where would I go other than like research or in a public place where I'd be able to run into somebody and have those type of conversations? There's no, this could go into the 20th century idea of Americans losing those like central meeting spots that they used to have, whether it was community meetings or rotary clubs or what what Mm -hmm. have you. We don't have Mm -hmm. those type of things now. So Mm -hmm. the only time I hear someone Mm -hmm. 100% pro-Trumper, where was I? I was going to a drillers game and I was waiting in line to get in. And that was like the one time I heard someone bashing Democrats right in front of me. And I was like, mm. do I do this now? And I was like, maybe not the best place to do it. I think just seeing more churches in place like Oklahoma be more public in being more of affirming churches. I thought it was, it was amazing how many churches put Black Lives Matter in the parking lots. I think I knew of maybe like four churches in Tulsa that were affirming Christian churches, right? But to see so many put out there, it made me hope that some of the people that were at churches that weren't willing to do that were thinking, all these other Christian churches are doing something. Are some of those people going to sit and think, is there something wrong with what we're doing? Just to see more more publicly, especially in a place, because it's one thing when they see that kind of a statement in somewhere in the North where they maybe expect to see that or, but to see that in a place like Tulsa with, with a racist history that we have, to me, that was, that was something that I, that I felt could be impactful and I'm sure led to conversations, but this is, it's going to be a long battle, right? To, and, and maybe battle is not the right word, but I mean, to to Jesse's point, in a lot of cases, we're not even having the conversations, right? We're we need to figure out how to create the forum because a lot of people don't. I mean, we've I think we've talked about this on the last time you're on this whole idea that, especially for white America, you don't talk politics, you don't talk religion in polite company. So you're not supposed to talk about it. Those are your beliefs and it doesn't affect anything, right? It's easy when those things don't negatively impact you as a person. It's easy for you. Mm-hmm. To them. We've talked about this stuff. It's a form mm-hmm. of privilege to not have to talk about politics and religion, right? And the fact that what we do in politics and religion for some people is un- it's life and death. It truly is. For most white Christians in America, it's not. So we can ignore it. So figuring out how to get through that, all of us being taught that we're not supposed to talk about this stuff. So how do we get through that and create venues to actually talk about this stuff and see what different types of Christianity or Christianity with with Jews, Muslims, Hindi, Buddhists, whatever, or atheists can still talk to each other like human beings and find the same moral ground that they share mm-hmm. and work towards a positive America without us having to believe in the exact same thing. To me, I mean, there's a possibility. I just don't know how to create those venues and conversations. It always feels weird when we ask the guests like to solve huge problems that are unsolvable. But now that President Trump is no longer in office and theoretically there'll be a cooling down of of the sort of national temperature. Yet here in Tulsa, we are gearing up for the uh, race massacre centennial. So there's going to be, and there's going to be a lot of conversations about race and what white people 
and Tulsa have done over the past hundred years. How do we tie that back into the sort of n- negative aspects of American Christianity without turning people off? I don't know if we can do it without turning people off. I do think that we can do it in a way that doesn't shame, that doesn't try to try to do it through shaming. Shame on shame on us. Look at all these terrible things we've done. While I can own certainly shame for what for what a lot of Christians, myself included, have done over time, that's not that doesn't move you forward. And the activists that I read would say, yeah, shame is self-defeating. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for change. And those of us who, you know, pay any attention to how the brain works, you get shamed. And the first thing you do is you you, you run into fight or flight. One of the biggest challenges in front of all of us is around the stories we tell. I absolutely agree with those who say we live inside our stories and our stories create our moral universes. And the just put it out there, the Trumpian story of the world or the QAnon narrative about what's really going on behind the scenes, these are terribly damaging stories. And they're damaging for QAnon. It's damaging because it's so ludicrous and yet people are believing it and starting to make decisions based on it. The Trumpian story of of America first, which is really kind of an America alone and it's white America alone and all that. It's part of that story of denial. I think the the huge challenge in front of all of us that, again, in my small way I'm trying to do, I feel like in, in what you all are trying to do with your podcasts and uh, you're trying to do this too. You're trying to say, no, no, no. There have been people left out of the story we've been telling. There have been incidents, circumstances left out. There have been values been left out. And in order for all of us together to see the story and say, yeah, I see that. I see myself in it. I see my group, my groups in it. It's going to take some real rewriting because the, the, the general narrative of American exceptionalism that we're, we've always been the best, uh, that we've always been kind, that we've always been generous that God has laid God's hand on us in a way God has laid a hand on no other nation except possibly Israel. That all that is, in, is, is the work in front of us. And I'm happy that people like uh, Jill Lepore, historian at Harvard, in, in her very nice volume she wrote a couple of years ago now, These Truths, I think is the name of the book, where she says, she says there were too many historians over the last 20, 30 years have given up writing grand histories. Uh, they've, they've gone to the individual, not the individual, they've gone to a, a smaller slice, or they've go, gone to that unspoken or have been re- previously repressed histories. All really important work, she said. But, th- but then when you come to the grand narratives, the charlatans kept writing them. Uh, the David Bartons of the world, who's a Christian nationalist, been highly influential in a lot of high school textbooks, work around what American history needs to be, they keep writing. Uh, and they're writing history that's been compelling enough that people have bought it. We need to write, it needs to be written, a, a grand narrative with compelling history where all of us see ourselves, where America's issues and mistakes and sins are, are there to see. And yet, there's yet that hope for being all of the nation that we were meant to be. I mean, in Langston Hughes' close of his, of, his, of his classic poem where he says, says, make America again the land that has not yet been. 
or the country that has not yet been. Yes, that's exactly it. But that's I think Chris said earlier, that's a lot. This is a long haul. This is going to this is going to take us a long time. While at the same time, we have these crises in front of us where uh, that racial crises, justice crisis, then environmental impact from from climate weirding, climate disruptions, and who knows when the next pandemic's coming along. So the we, you know, that question of we, we, it's we. How do we tell a story about us and we that is genuinely inclusive and makes sense? Any political argument I've ever been in, or religious argument even, where America is concerned, is that the the base difference is what the dream of America is. What is the story of America? And at least for me, as a uh, mm. like reformed Jewish person, America was always a dream we were working towards, not a dream that at one point existed that we're trying to work back to. Mm. So like America itself has ideals that we have not right, yet right. achieved and we care and are working towards and, mm -hmm. an and arguing with people to move us towards those ideals, towards the, towards the, the, the perfect American idea that we have of what America should be. And I feel like the argument I'm having with other people is there was a time when America had its shit together and we're trying to get back to that. And I'm like, it for you, mm -hmm. but not for everyone. Mm -hmm. He hasn't been right, brought up in a right. conversation in a long time, but, uh, Former uh, former senators John Edwards, like his whole spiel was the two Americas. I feel like we are certainly at that point now. There are two different both histories mm -hmm. and stories and day-to-day -day operations of the America we live in. And especially with this pandemic and not being able to go out and do things, it, um, it's making me feel even less optimistic about how we get out of this. And I think the reason I think that a lot is because of how being raised here and how Christians would talk to me about things that were in my holy book and me thinking like, oh, we are reading two completely different things. Like one, you're reading it in English, which has been translated sure. like 15 yeah. times. And you're telling me we should take it literally. I'm like, mm, maybe learn Aramaic first. Mm. And, and secondly, like <laughs> any argument about the Bible and how you view the Bible also relates to how you view the constitution. Is it a document that is perfect and does not need to be changed in any way? Or I can't original buy intent. original intent because I know human mm. beings. And I know that we make mistakes and language is not perfect. So maybe when it says this thing, I don't know, like maybe what they, one, they could have been wrong. Two, they were right at the time, but it could be changed. Or three, maybe like uh, they didn't know what they were talking about. But you can't, like you can't, you certainly can't talk to an evangelical yeah. Christian about the Bible that way. And you certainly can't talk to them about the constitution being that way. And this is, see, you've just very well named a variety of ways in which Christian evangelical narrative has been laid over top of America's story that, in fact, distorts the whole thing. The, le the third point you had made regarding the originalist reading the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, that sounds a whole lot like a literal interpretation of the Bible, as if, that, as, as if there is such a thing, as if that's evident without actually interpreting. You don't have to interpret. It's there. That's just read it. It's right there. And original intent is, for yeah, I also agree, is is not the way to go with things. But the evangelical narrative—it's not just evangelical Christianity, but evangelicalism and then fundamentalism also has done this narrative. It's they they've imposed the fall, the fall narrative on America. There was the original garden, and then something came into the garden 
that was didn't belong there that has created some sort of evil. And that now needs to be redeemed, wiped out, so that the Garden of God or the City of God, as, uh, as Chris mentioned Revelation earlier, or the City of God can come. And so what is it that, that, has, that is the sin that needs to be uprooted? And from one side, you're hearing very clearly it's racism and a pretty close tie also to capitalism as it's developed to around, again, cheap or stolen land and cheap labor. And on the one side, and then on the other side, it's some kind of sexual sin. It's when you let women run things. It's when, when you disturb God's hierarchy, white over black. It's, it's when you allowed races to mix. It's when, you, it's when the federal government told Bob Jones University, your policies are racist and the IRS is going to revoke your 501c3 status as a nonprofit, which of course is a real case. And there are some who would argue that that, that galvanization, fundamentalist and evangelical Christianity, bringing them into public life, is what in fact eventually led to the, to the moral majority and anti-abortion and how abortion and sexuality and all and gender expression get tied into religion in such ways. So so yes, two very different stories. And and I would have to I think part of the for for people of faith, especially for Christians, I, I want to be part of rethinking America's story or stories without trying to superimpose a Christian narrative upon it that somehow we are that there's an archetype somewhere that we are now a type of that archetype and just working that out in history. That's so damaging to us at this point in time, especially. Along those lines, so what can our listeners, friends, whoever, who are white Christians, when they go back to their church or parish, what can they do there to ensure, one, that, that they're, they, they themselves are not supporting white supremacy, white nationalism, but also be able to make changes within their church so that their church maybe better supports the ideals of, that Christianity was founded on? For me, I guess I have to go to myself at this point and what's helped me. And that's, I'm a reader. So what you read and, and also I love TV, always have, and what you watch. There are so many fantastic shows out on TV or out available in all the various services right now, whether they be movies or PBS has a lineup coming up this month on Black Church or Henry Louis Gates uh, series he did on Reconstruction based on the book that he he wrote about it. So even if you're not a reader, there's so many good things out there that can help help you understand what you probably weren't taught in school. And I think that's a big deal. I think that you have you have those options. You ha- there are there's all kinds of blogs, all kinds of articles out there that starting a discussion group in your church, joining a discussion group that's doing it. If your church or or religious community isn't interacting with a community different from yourself in any way right now. Why not? What's your history of trying that? And how can you get involved? It's really clear from both research, I'd say, and just anecdotally, there's so many people have said, uh, deep-seated attitudes don't change except through relationships. You form a relationship with someone that, that, that then becomes a relationship where you can trust each other enough to say what's really on your heart and mind. And it takes those sorts of things. 
religious communities are ideally set up for such things unless what they're what they've gone about is to create a bubble or an, an a, a walls between them and the world because the world is evil and we're uh, keep a, a pristine community here so those are just a few things chris i think they can absolutely do you can read you can it, you can put th- different things in what different shows and what you watch and you can ask yourself about what is the racial ethnic diversity within your own community what are the racial ethnic attitudes within your own community and why if you're not involved in a dialogue a fellowship with another community that looks different from the way you look why not yeah and i and i think a really strong thing to think about cuz as you said earlier shaming people doesn't work right at least not long term but to me one of the biggest tenets of Christianity is hope, right? I mean, that is, mm-hmm. it's, it's hope for better for ourselves, hope for better for the community, hopefully, hope, hoping that for better things for your country as well. And tying that back to making a difference as a community, tying that in with the hope of Christianity can be an important aspect of this. I agree. And, and, this speaking again personally, I think that presenting white supremacy and racism as systemic issues frees up some of the potential shame of being called out as a racist. Because the fact of the matter is, all of us in white America participate in a racist society that benefits us. And the, the so so therefore. Are we racist? Yes, we are. <laughs> we are. So what are you going to do about it? That's when the question comes in. What are you going to do about it? Uh, are you going to just continue to use your privilege for yourself? Or are you going to in any way use your privilege to join anti-racist efforts, efforts to dismantle uh, uh, that system, efforts to, to point out the when the system is being invoked in ways that maybe you didn't see before, but now you see. That for me is gets away from the shame, 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 shame. You're a racist. If we just all say, I mean, it's kind of like all saying we're all sinners. But how do you participate in that in that in those broken relationships in ways that benefit you? Versus how do you how do you move out from those broken relationships into a place of wholeness and healing, which of course we know is in you know shalom. Uh, shalom is not the absence of conflict. Shalom is a a um a genuinely healed and just community yeah anyone who's ever met jews knows it's not about a quiet peace so (laughs) no right right like the president bartlett approach the the okay we've talked about it so what's next how do we fix it Mm -hmm. which i think obviously you have to first have the conversation that there are problems so you can move forward and start fixing it but taking it away from which whether people are actually constantly shaming, I think there is a group of, of white Americans who think that they're just being constantly shamed mm-hmm. and get defensive. So finding a way around that, I think, is, is finding the right way to get past the defensiveness. Yeah, and I'm not, oppo- I mean, I'm not opposed to using shame in rather particular circumstances, but I think those rather particular circumstances are pretty much for me, pretty much limited to public figures who have publicly 
failed to own responsibility for their own actions and having then them them publicly having the actions they are denying pointed out to them and trying to hold them accountable can be experienced for sure as a shaming sort of thing. But that to me, that's legitimate shame. Taking on a kid, kids taking on another kid via social media and shaming them in any way to the point of degrading them so that they feel like dirt at all. We've already been going for quite some time, but I want people to know where they can find your stuff, both your blog posts and your podcast. So this is your chance to now uh, hawk yourself on in the collective podcast love fest that is podcasts. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So that's right. That's right. On, on, on Facebook, you can go to the Phillips Theological Seminary page, and there is a Facebook group there, Religion and Public Life. And also on the Phillips website, ptstulsa.edu, you would find under Religion and Public Life, you'll find my blog, which I do on a weekly basis, trying to comment on some moral or religious uh, uh, story going on in American public life, and then podcasting. And my podcasting, unfortunately, has been somewhat truncated recently, just from a variety of internal circumstances at school. But I want to keep telling stories of progressive leaders and progressive communities that are doing good work, that especially in a a state like Oklahoma, where we have one religion reporter in the entire state, and she's in Oklahoma City. And the religion reporter we had in Tulsa, fine individual, but not all that uh, sensitive to a number of more progressive issues. We just don't get the stories around. So I'm, uh, I want to tell those stories. Since the last time we spoke to you, we've been living through this pandemic. For some people, it's, it's now over a year of them being locked down. How have you sort of kept your sanity during yes. this time? What did you find that was completely separate from your work that you did? Like Chris and I are, are pop culture nerds. So we, we binge watch TV shows or movies or video games. But uh, I know other people have more adult interests. We read fantasy books. We read books too. That's true. There, there are still books. There's we, still I, books. I now know how to forge a weapon, <laughs> thanks to one of our previous guests. Well, what have you been doing to, to relax during this mm-hmm. pandemic? Yeah, that's tough. That's tough because we've also have a 14-year-old at home and her schooling has changed radically in this year. And that's been a eighth grade year. So it's just really, it's been a struggle for us. And my dad also died uh, uh as I know, Jesse, you had a loss in your family, very uh, close family, very recently. And pandemic losses are are weirder, even and more difficult because of the difficulty of gathering folks. My biggest thing I would say is walking, living in midtown and walking with our what is she six or seven year old German Shepherd Athena, who kind of lives for the moment when I invite her uh, to put on her leash and go outside. So walking has been a big one for me. I probably have listened to more books on Audible than I than I had been. And I do have more time to listen to Pod Save America, for instance. Listening to Pod Save America and and what I consider to be sane political conversation in the midst of insane times. Well, uh, Gary, thank you for joining us again. And hopefully as we all slowly get vaccinated and we can uh, meet again in person, we can all attempt to try to have these conversations now that, which I think will be helpful. I think us all being locked in our homes has not been good for the polarizing of America. We can all have our own mini beer summits with people we disagree with. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And again, we massively appreciate you coming to talk to us about this again. Thank you. Always enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to our conversation with Gary. 
There are links to his podcast as well as his blogs in our show notes. And send him a friend request on Facebook if you're not already friends with him. Speaking of Facebook, please follow Pod for Good there. That's P-O-D, the number four, G-O-O-D. We're also on the Grams and the Twitter. And of course, please subscribe and leave a review if you can. And again, if you do, I will read it on air. As always, Telsa, get it done. And Broken Arrow, especially, wear a mask. Thank you.